From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's senior senator says Congress will work through the weekend on an immigration fix. It will not be the sort of comprehensive reform Michael Bennett has spent years fighting for. What is crazy is that what we have now in the United States is a system of immigration that is so broken. The only way people believe they can migrate here and work is to do it illegally. So what is in the package, and could it help new immigrants here who want to support themselves? Then, some immigration history. Did you know about the Jamaican farm workers who came to Colorado under a special guest worker program? Where they lived is now considered an endangered place. These barracks are actually believed to be the last standing building directly linked to this under-researched history in Colorado. Is that old car of yours taking up valuable space? Free up some room and make a difference by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is safe and easy. You just have to find the title and the keys, and we'll handle the rest. The proceeds of your gift go into CPR's operating budget. Fuel the news and music you rely on by donating your car. Find out how on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Record numbers of people are immigrating to the U.S. Colorado's senior senator, Democrat Michael Bennett, has been in negotiations over how to change immigration laws for years. And he joins us at this critical time, as many people have come to Colorado, to establish their new lives. And Senator, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's great to be with you. These issues are connected. The lives of tens of thousands of people who've arrived in Colorado since late 2022 and the longstanding problems with U.S. immigration law, which affects millions more people. Uh, First to the immediate prospects of reforming the system. In recent weeks, we've seen reports of a Senate deal brewing that would be tied to Ukraine aid. As we speak here on Thursday morning, is the deal still alive and what would it do on immigration? I would say the deal is still alive. What it would do on immigration is change the asylum standard to uh, raise the threshold at the border, provide money and resources to the agencies at the border so that determinations could be made more expeditiously about whether people should be released into the United States or, or not released into the United States. That's not happening today because the border is overwhelmed. At this moment, the deal is very much in doubt. The Republicans are divided in the Senate about whether they want to vote for this deal because some of them are worried. Some of them, are, I suppose, are just opposed to it. Some are worried that they're going to give the president of the United States a political benefit And the House of Representatives is saying they won't vote for any border bill at all for that reason. So we've been working hard on this for months. I hope spring's eternal. And I continue to hope we're going to somehow get this done over the weekend. Um, Of course, bound up in all of this is this country's responsibilities and obligations to continue to fund Ukraine. And that's part of this as well. Okay, you talk about raising the threshold for asylum. Does that mean turning more people away to the extent that you're able? 
Uh, it would turn more people away. It's important to understand that there are now four to five times the number of people that are coming to the border than were coming to the border in previous presidencies. That's largely the result of transnational gangs creating billion-dollar enterprises to smuggle people from all over the world to the United States. That's one of the big things that's changed since uh, 2013 when I was part of the Gang of Eight that wrote a comprehensive immigration bill that I hope or I wish that we had passed then because I think we wouldn't be facing any of these problems today. But that's one of the things that's changed, and the system has become completely overwhelmed as a result. And as you can see in Denver and, and in Colorado. I mean, you have governments, for instance, that are essentially collapsing in Venezuela. You have people escaping what they see as threats to their lives in various countries. And these gangs capitalizing on that, essentially collecting money and helping shepherd people to the border. The Republican House Speaker says even if a deal passed the Senate, it would be, quote, dead in the House. You say hope springs eternal. Are you is that being Pollyanna? Well, I hope it's not being Pollyanna, but I'll tell you the tragedy of the Gang of Eight bill in 2013, which got 68 votes in the Senate, went over to the House, never got a vote. A minority of House members, in that case, the so-called Freedom Caucus, wouldn't even allow it to be voted on. Speaker Boehner said his greatest regret was not bringing that vote to the floor. That, by the way, I have to say, was a much better and much more comprehensive and much more thoughtful bill than the one that we're considering right now. But I hope this speaker doesn't make the same mistake that John Boehner made. Well, I've read that the deal you're talking about would focus mostly on detention and deportation and indeed, as we've said, raise the threshold for asylum. It it makes me wonder if that strategy, I suppose that is more focused on policing immigrants, if that's the only option, because we hear from people who've come from countries like Venezuela and Peru and Mauritania, that they want to work. Uh, We recently spoke with a woman who went to school for business and wants to establish a career in Colorado. Her name is Yaile Peña. So what about the idea of instead of a strict focus on policing, that people could be allowed into the U.S. in a more orderly way and get to work legally, particularly during a labor shortage that's driving inflation. I mean, well, that's definitely part of this deal. Their work visas is part of the deal, not nearly as many as I would wish, and not ones for people that have been in our country for 10, 15, 20 years, you know, who have been among them dreamers, among them people that have picked fruits and vegetables all over the Western United States who are saying, you know, where are we? Why have we been left completely behind in all of this discussion? Unfortunately, the Republicans in this negotiation have refused to allow those work permits for people that have been here before. And they've been very parsimonious, as I understand it, with the ones that are going to be part of this deal. But I completely agree that that should be part of what we're doing here. And I think what is crazy is that what we have now in the United States is basically a system of immigration that is so broken 
that the only way people believe they can migrate here and work is to do it illegally. And we should instead be working on lawful ways for people to come to this country in a thoughtful way that allows people to have the benefit of the promise of the United States and the United States have the benefit of the promise of immigration. Regrettably, deeply regrettably, that is not part of the legislation that we're passing today. I, I hope and I believe that we will ultimately pass something very much like the Gang of Eight Bill in 2013 that dealt with all this, but that's not going to happen today. That's not going to happen today, you say, simply because of the makeup of the Senate and the House. Do I hear that? Well, it's not going to happen today because of the makeup of the Senate and the House and also because the system today is completely overwhelmed. I mean, I was one of the few Democrats 18 months ago to object to the Biden administration's lifting of Title 42. I had seen in my work on immigration all these years how important it is to have a plan. They had no plan. And what has happened is what I predicted would happen, which is that the system has become completely overwhelmed. And now we're dealing with some politicians here who are waving a bloody flag for them of immigration, of anti-immigrant rhetoric, and and that I think is deeply uh, at war with who we are as Americans and deeply at war with the policies that we need to adopt. And in this moment, we're trying to get to an agreement that in the moment makes sense for the American people. In the end, we have to create a system that's consistent with our Uh, the rule of law and our heritage as a nation of immigrants, and I think our future as a nation of immigrants. You mentioned Title 42. During the pandemic, this allowed for expulsions by the U.S. government uh, of people who'd arrived in the country. For more than a decade, I mean, you've said this, you've been involved in periodic negotiations around changes to the immigration system, and yet very little has changed. As you have pointed out, some Republicans are betting immigration will be a winning campaign issue for them. They believe that chaos in the system is good electorally from 2024. Democrats also regularly campaign on immigration. And so the people most impacted by this issue get courted by one party, insulted by the other with the purpose of winning elections. Why should they have any hope, given that no serious reform has happened since the 1980s? Well, I would disagree with what you said. You said nothing's gotten done. I think that's, I think the right way to characterize it is matters have gotten a lot worse. And the utter dysfunction of Washington, D.C., when it comes to uh, immigration policy is reaping a whirlwind today, you know, and we have turned the rhetoric of immigration into political napalm in this country. And you can see very clear distinctions in the candidates that are running for president. I believe very strongly as the son of an immigrant to this country uh, and as the former superintendent of a school district that was full of immigrants, I feel very, very strongly that a core aspect of who we are as Americans. And in fact, one of the great advantages we have over our competitors around the world is when we've had a functional immigration system. I think what the American people want is to have a system that is, as I said earlier, consistent with the rule of law, 
is not chaotic, is not overwhelmed the border, and allows us to, when we let people in, have them work. We're seeing the Republican governor in Texas push the legal limits of a state's role in immigration and enforcement. I mean, should Democrats be doing anything like that to align with what the Democratic base has said it supports for years? Like, should Colorado create an easier way for new immigrants to get work permits as a like a liberal way of testing what's under a state's jurisdiction? I think that's just more of the same kind of politics that have gotten us into this morass. You know, there is a reason why the Constitution of the United States assigns immigration to the federal government. This is not Jared Polis's job. This is not Mike Johnston's job. You know, as you pointed out, there are plenty of vacant jobs in Colorado and across the country. Those are matters that Congress has to address, not because I've got great faith in Congress, but because if there's one reason I can think of that we'd be one nation under God, that would be to have a rational immigration system. And that's why it's in the Constitution that we ought to be doing it. I don't think Democrats playing politics with it is going to make anything better. Senator, should the wall have been built fully? I think that when we were in 2013 and we passed the Gang of Eight bill, there was $40 billion for the border. $40 billion. That is a gazillion dollars more than Donald Trump ever spent on his quote-unquote wall. But it was not medieval technology. It was technology that would allow us to see every single inch of the border, allow us to see who is coming across the border. I think that would make a lot more sense than uh, trying to build the wall in places where it makes no sense to build the wall. Back to the notion of work. The fact that many people can't work legally means they need more help when they arrive to get shelter, food, health care. One of the groups helping coordinate the response in Denver is Organización Papagayo. Executive Director Marielena Suarez calls the current situation a ticking time bomb. She is asking Congress and the federal government to mount a national response. Because this is not something that is just happening to Colorado. And it's happening throughout the United States. We need to come together. We have many people that will not even qualify for asylum. So it's not a practical solution what we have right now. It's not realistic. Suarez said service providers are overwhelmed. She's worried about the mental health of people immigrating right now. She's worried about shelter. Uh, You asked the Biden administration in a letter in December to shuffle its priorities in order to make more money available for response. Have you gotten any response to your letter? We haven't uh, yet. I think I imagine that everybody is tied up in the negotiations that we're trying to get done, hopefully this weekend. But I think it's interesting, the person that you were just quote or had on the program, I think made the point more eloquently than I, than I ever could, that this is a national issue, which is why we're trying to get FEMA to step up and provide more resources to Colorado. What would that look like? It would be to backfill the community groups and local governments that have been having to go out of their their own pocket to be able to, to, to address the humanitarian issues that have been caused by 
the broken immigration system that we have. Would there be emergency housing like we see in the wake of disasters? I didn't know. There would not. Okay. Suarez and others in Colorado who work with new immigrants say the real solution beyond temporary services is more comprehensive reform to immigration laws. And they say inadequate laws create the situation we see on the ground today. Again, most people trying to immigrate legally just can't work while they go through the process and they wait years to see a judge. Here's Mateos Alvarez, who works with people arriving in Aurora. I think the long-term strategy also needs to be about work authorization. And I think because that leads to having migrants be more self-sufficient, doing it on their own, earning their own wages, paying their own rent. And it's something that they aspire to do. And with a little bit of help from Congress, uh, I think that's the long-term, more sustainable way of moving forward and not just this endless cycle of offering services, which are very important, will always be needed, but we need a, to look you know, downstream. Do you think Washington is meeting? I have a feeling I know the answer to this question. Do you think Washington is meeting this moment? I mean, really confronting the massive global migration happening right now? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think we are. And I would take it one step further. It is important for us to have a system, as I said, of lawful immigration so that people aren't coming here illegally. They're coming here legally. And when they come here, that they have the ability to work. But that's not enough. I mean, part of the Gang of Eight bill had a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million people that are here that are undocumented. It had a pathway to citizenship for the Dreamers, dealt with all the visa issues as well that are such pain points for farmers and ranchers and ski resorts in Colorado. None of that is even comprehended by the legislation that we're talking about today. Mm. And all of that, I think, is going to be essential for us to fulfill our potential as a nation and for our potential as a nation, a nation of immigrants, so that people that not just the people that are in this crisis right now, but that the people that the millions and millions and millions of people, as I've said, that have picked fruits and vegetables for decades in America, that have waited tables or gone to school, have a chance to be able to to have a process where they, if they seek it, can apply for American citizenship and on the way are able to work. And I'll say frankly, very frankly, Ryan, I think the chaos at the border makes it harder, not easier, for us to address those issues that we tried to deal with with the Gang of Eight. I want you, before we let you go, to talk to someone listening to this interview who hears what was possible when you were a member of the Gang of Eight, what you tried to achieve, who hears about, as you refer to it, the chaos today, who cares about the border, who cares about folks being able to work, who cares about uh, a system that functions, and who says, what is the path then? You, you hold out minimal hope. You say that uh, the current legislation being crafted um, is not comprehensive. How do they not walk away from listening to this interview, throwing their hands up in the air? Well, I, I hope people won't throw their hands up in the air. I think it's very important for us to reject demagogues who want to demonize immigrants, who have a completely ahistorical view of what America's 
past has been and what our future can be. And I think it's important for all of us to recognize, and this is not excuse making. I mean, I'm as frustrated as anybody else to recognize how hard it is to make progress in the democracy. And we, we can give up in the face of that, or we can keep going. I'm hoping that this is going to be something that we're going to be able to address in the coming months and years, but we can't give up hope. We have to keep fighting. Senator, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. I just hope that anybody listening to this also makes sure that the United States fulfills our responsibility to fund Ukraine because it would be a tragedy for democracy around the world and for our own democracy if we fail to do that. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Democrat Michael Bennett is Colorado's senior U.S. Senator. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with new additions to the state's most endangered places list, among them a bowling alley and a cluster of churches. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. For years, Colorado leaders fought to keep Space Command headquarters in Colorado Springs. So we enlisted our friends, our allies, folks that understand space issues deeply. In this latest episode of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish, we pull back the curtain on Colorado's fight for Space Command, the bipartisan cooperation and lobbying it took to reverse a presidential decision to send the command to Alabama, and why any victory dance may be premature. Purplish, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A century-old bowling alley in Victor, Colorado, is one of the state's most endangered places. This year's additions also include a steam power plant in Denver and a cluster of churches in Costilla County. Katie Peterson runs the endangered program at Colorado Preservation Incorporated, She also brings news of sites that have been saved and lost. Hi, Katie. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. Always exciting to learn about these sites each year. And you choose five sites that Colorado risks losing to age, neglect, the elements. But it's not that we just risk losing a building, right? It's heritage that's in jeopardy. So how do you see that with the Costilla County Mission Churches in the San Luis Valley? Yes. So there are actually nine churches that are associated with this listing. Um, They are all owned by the Diocese of Pueblo and they're in, you know, varying degrees of condition. So the reason why we listed the Costilla County Mission Churches is that these churches, parishes and irrigational ditches, they embody communal living in the San Luis Valley. However, you know, these resources have become increasingly difficult to maintain uh, with the dwindling population of Costilla County. Mm. And as part of the Sangre de Cristo land grant, uh, a Mexican land grant helped to establish efforts to settle the northernmost regions, Costilla County is home to the oldest permanent settlements in Colorado. So Mayordomos, or caretakers of the town's irrigation ditches and churches, they make repairs as needed. So most of these churches operate on donations and volunteer work. And I mean, the main reason why many of them are standing today. So the churches, as you say, are owned by the Diocese of Pueblo. Yes. Three have been condemned. 
One, because its bell tower is no longer stable. Mm -hmm. Are any of them operating? That's a tricky question because, yes, they are still operating, um, but because of these Mission Town's low populations, not a lot of people, I mean, you know, the people that can, they, they go to Mass. But you only get, you know, maybe five or six people that that will go to mass in these mission towns. The father that is living in San Luis uh, in the parish, he is only able to travel to these churches and conduct mass every, I'd say it's about once every month. Hmm. How far apart are the nine churches? There are about... I want to say seven of them that are in relatively close range within each other. Um, I'd say within about four or five miles. The outlying ones uh, like St. James in Blanca and the Holy Family Church in Fort Garland and the Sacred Heart Church in Garcia. Those ones are a little bit further out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Garcia is actually the southernmost settlement in Colorado. And we list, actually listed the Garcia School last year. So this is the, uh, the second Garcia endangered place in a matter of two years. I, I want to note that there are estimates the Catholic Church globally is worth $30 billion. Do, do they really need help from your nonprofit here? You know, in this case, we will serve as a third party just to mitigate discussions between, uh, you know, I'm from a rural town myself. And uh, so just to to mitigate the discussions between larger organizations like the Catholic Church and these very small mission towns. Get the word to the Pope, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, so often when there is a relic, we're told, do not touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I understand your approach with the endangered list this year is to really overcome that mentality a bit. Maybe point to another site that illustrates that for you. Let's jump over to the Kit Carson Museum in Bent County. That is actually my hometown of Los Animas. Ah. So with this, you know, and a lot of the endangered places that we did list this year, they are all about adaptive reuse. Let me just say the adaptive reuse term means that you preserve the historic integrity of a place, but it might be used for something different than it was originally intended. Yes, absolutely. And so we'll take that with the Kit Carson Museum. Looking at the economy of Bent County and Los Animas, Bent County is one of the poorest counties in the state. And so if we are able to bring, you know, economics into Los Animas and create some sort of entrepreneurial business. What would that look like with this particular structure? There is no definitive answer as of just yet, um, but I have talked to local community members. We would love to have some sort of, you know, maybe a coffee shop in that area. In Los Animas, there are two restaurants, three restaurants. Uh, One is also a fast food place. So the economics down there and uh, having people doing things like activities with children as well is definitely a struggle, as with a lot of small towns. One of the buildings for the Kit Carson Museum, wasn't it also like a POW camp for German soldiers, German officers? Yes. So the larger adobe building, um, this was constructed in the 1930s, was home to a prisoner of war or a POW camp for German officers during World War II. Uh, The POWs were actually sent to neighboring farms to be agricultural workers. And eventually the crop yield eventually exceeded expectations. And many German POWs employed their learned farm techniques in their own homes when they returned uh, after the war. And this building is actually one of the very few remaining POW camps in Colorado. But the lesser known story about this building, too, is the barracks were also home to one of four Jamaican migrant 
farm working camps in Colorado. So this was brought to the United States through a guest worker program. Um, and so 99 Jamaican farmers worked in the fields of Colorado. Unlike the German POWs, they were not really welcomed or appreciated for their work down in uh, the southeastern corner there. So Mexican laborers and the Bracero program eventually replaced the Jamaican workers. But uh, these barracks are actually believed to be the last standing building directly linked to this underrepresented and under-researched history in Colorado. Gosh, never knew about the Jamaican-Colorado connection. Thank you for that. Of course. this is a, It's a really neat story, and that's what uh, we're here for is to tell it. Well, I'm excited to say that the owner of that bowling alley in Victor, Colorado, is also on the line with us. He is Stephen Morgan. Hi, Stephen. Hey there, Ryan. You're originally a filmmaker from Florida. You bought the bowling alley, I think, in 2020. How did Victor, Colorado get on your radar? When I was in Florida, I got hired by a friend of mine to come out and direct some commercials for the Cripple Creek Casinos. And that's when I first was introduced to Southern Teller County, which we fell in love with. And we just, you know, we decided to make a move out here and make a movie. And we did that for a few years and got it financed and put together. And it features a lot of places in Victor and Cripple Creek. And one of the places was the bowling alley. Hmm. And it's right behind a guy's head while we uh, do a shootout in the street. When it became available, you know, they said they wanted it to go to somebody who would promise not to tear it down and turn it into housing or something. And I said, I could do that. Oh, the movie, by the way, is called Rook. um, And it's pretty widely available. And so you thought, I could do that? I mean, who in their right mind says, I'm going to take over uh, an old bowling alley and try to make it work in a place that, you know, is not freeway close? Yeah, you know, right mind is a subjective term. So... uh, (laughs) We do a lot of things that, you know, a lot of people would probably cringe at. But, you know, this life is meant for adventure and we're up for the task. The building was built in 1900. This is after a fire wiped out 12 blocks of Victor's business district. It started as a grocery store and then in the 1930s is transformed into a four-lane bowling alley. I think to this day it's the only bowling alley in Teller County. Uh, one of the few bowling alleys in the U.S. to feature manual pin setters. That is to say, someone has to reset the pins after they're bowled over. What stories have you heard about that? Yeah, I mean, we open it all the time to people who, you know, they'll walk down the street and they'll say, you know, my dad used to set pins back there when he was a kid. Or people, you know, in their 70s and 80s say that they used to do it. Lots of residents and lots of people in Cripple Creek and Victor have done that. And... You know, we've had a guy come in and say, oh, yeah, I came in and, you know, after school and I was setting the pins and a bull hit me in the leg and broke my foot. And I finished up my shift and made my way back home after that and patched it up, you know, and so crazy stuff. You know, this is different world. I was wondering if it's a potentially dangerous job um, for that reason. The bowling alley for now is only open for special events, but you hope to restore it and make it a staple in what used to be Victor's red light district. Tell us yes. more yeah, about your vision. Our primary function that we do is filmmaking. You know, we make movies and TV shows and we figure when it comes to bringing people and tourism back to a small town like Victor, hmm. no better advertising than, you know, through the cinema. So if we could feature a lot of the places in our movies and TV shows, 
you know, that are currently there or, you know, after we rehabilitate them, it just makes people that much more interested and excited to come out and check it out. You know, we hear people all the time say they never even heard of Cripple Creek or Victor till they saw our movie and then they had to go there. Yeah, I think about how Mad Men transformed my hometown of Palm Springs. I think about the popularity of that car wash in Albuquerque after Breaking Bad. I mean, it it can really be a breakthrough moment for a place, can't it? Yeah, for sure. Uh And, um, you know, the place is ripe. It's ready to go. And they're wonderful (laughs) people and they deserve it. What do you feel when you step into the bowling alley? You know, it's it's Lebowski-esque, you know. <laughs> it Not definitely fair. has a tone, you know. It's kind of chilly right now because it's the winter. But you can imagine yourself transported back into the 60s or 70s and, you know, just a bunch of people hanging out on a Friday night or Monday morning or whenever because, you know, it's heated. So even during the winter, it's one of the only recreational things that people can do out there that is warm. And so there's a lot of reasons to go, but, you know, we just feel like, you know, we're a part of the place now, you know, in ways we didn't before. Are you a good bowler, Stephen? I, I can bowl, Mm. you know, if you can bowl a strike on these lanes, you can bowl a strike anywhere. Oh, are they tough? They're they're You know, they need some work. (laughs) Aha. Well, that's part of the reason I imagine you have landed on the endangered list, yes, big, big need for TLC, I gather. Yeah, it needs a little, little TLC, not too much, but you know, just enough to get people in there. Well, Katie also included on this year's endangered places list is the Zuni steam power plant in Denver built in mm-hmm. 1900. I know some people refer to that as Zuni, but I'm going to say Zuni. Um, it's now vacant in the La Alma Lincoln Park and Sun Valley neighborhoods. There's also the Valmont School in Boulder County, built in 1911. The last class to graduate from there was in 51. And I understand Mm -hmm. that Valmont School represents some groundbreaking architecture. Absolutely. So the Valmont School is an excellent representation. And I mean, perhaps the best existing example of Harmon S. Palmer's ornamental concrete block architecture It was patented in Colorado in 1899. So Palmer's concrete block machine was instrumental in the mass production of hollow concrete blocks. And so this construction method became extremely popular by the time Valmont School was built in 1911 and was even advertised in mail order catalogs like Montgomery Ward and, and Sears. Decorative concrete, ornamental concrete, quite an idea. Oh, yes. In addition to adding five places to the endangered list, you've removed two, which are now considered saved. One is the Paris Mill in Park County, which processed precious metals from nearby mine, a stunning wooden structure that I looked at. Um, <laughs> it had been on the list for 19 years. Now it's on the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, the other that you have delisted is the Four Bar Four Ranch in Grand County. That one was rebuilt like using original materials. Yes. So with the hotel, you're absolutely right. The hotel was actually sunk in because it didn't have a solid foundation. It was sunk in about five feet into the ground. Wow. And uh, so I actually talked to Kent Waymeyer. He is one of the uh, amazing volunteers with Historic Fraser Inc. And it reminds me of 
I mean, life-size Lincoln logs basically is what happened here. They took apart that building, they built a foundation, and they put it back exactly as it was. Remarkable and a testament to how saving many of these endangered places is a local community effort, almost like a barn raising, maybe sometimes literally a barn raising. Okay, before we go, I want to note... One site that has been on Colorado's most endangered places list since 2009 is now considered lost. Mm -hmm. It's the 16th Street Mall in Denver, which, you know, remains in the heart of the city. So why is it considered lost? So a little history on the 16th Street Mall before I jump into the the lost piece. So the 16th Street Mall was first opened in 1982. And of course, is one of the most iconic destinations in Denver, as it serves both tourists and residents alike. But it was actually determined eligible for the National Register of Historic Places solely because of its internationally recognized designers, including I.M. Pei. Concerns rose over a new plan that would remove most of the historic characteristics of the mall by the time of its listing in 2009. So we participated in discussions with the city and county of Denver and uh, the Regional Transportation District, or RTD, to preserve Uh, some historic elements of the mall, including the original granite pavers and the diamondback pattern, uh, along with the trees and the unique globe lights that were set in a linear design. So while the new design of 16th Street Mall will pay some homage to the original designers, much of it will go under a significant remodel. So the new mall will utilize granite pavers, but they will be much smaller and incorporate different designs for transit and pedestrian lanes. This actually breaks the cohesion of the original diamondback pattern. But one lesson that can be learned from the loss of 16th Street is the importance of recognizing the historical significance of more recent resources. So the idea, of course, isn't that the 16th Street Mall is going anywhere. It's just that it's a historic identity has been compromised in your mind. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, Stephen, before we go, being on the endangered places list doesn't come with a financial windfall. So what do you hope landing on the list will mean for the bowling alley in Victor? Yeah, you know, we we have uh, a big vision for it for the bowling alley and and for Victor in general. But what we need is boots on the ground support, you know, people who know how to do structural stuff, you know, engineering and stabilization. We don't know. We haven't even had a um, an engineer in to take a look at it yet, you know, so we don't know what it's going to need. It might only need cosmetic, you know, might need just some masonry work on the front and uh, maybe some new windows, you know, basically anyone who would be excited about doing something like this to bring it back to life and restore it. You know, we're totally open and, and looking to talk. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Great. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Katie Peterson leads the most endangered places list for Colorado Preservation Inc. Stephen Morgan and his wife B owned the Victor Bowling Alley in Teller County, one of five new sites on the list this year. Photos galore at CPR.org. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in. El Paso County is seeing more homeless encampment fires. Fire chiefs are searching for answers, but as CPR's Dan Boyce explains, they do not have the authority to enforce codes in Colorado. That's the county's job. 
A little more than a year ago, Stratmore Hills Fire Chief Sean Biddle's department, just south of Colorado Springs, dealt with a massive encampment fire. Tents, vehicles, shelters were set ablaze. Even as many as 50 propane tanks exploded. Luckily, weather conditions were favorable that day, and the inferno did not impact nearby houses. But Biddle thinks the county might not always be so lucky. He had watched the camp grow for months and warned of what he saw as a fire danger. I have no problem with people trying to survive and live, but they have to do it in a safe manner that doesn't cause danger to other people. Biddle's department responded to nearly 200 homeless encampment fires in 2023. He and other departments asked El Paso County for help in enforcing fire codes, going as far as to create a task force to tackle the issue. But chiefs say county staff would not consider their ideas, and no commissioners showed up to task force meetings. El Paso County Communications Director Vernon Stewart said in an email statement, commissioners had intended to attend meetings eventually if proposals got further along. He pointed to measures the county has taken to address fires, including a code enforcement officer specifically dedicated to encampments. But the chiefs say that's not enough. When the situation occurs and the big fire happens and properties are lost and lives are lost, that is not the time to create a task force on homeless camp fires. It's too late. They're pushing to make property owners liable for encampment fires or toxic materials on their land, either through a county ordinance or state legislation. The property owners have to take responsibility and have to be held accountable for creating those unsafe environments that could affect the livelihoods of other citizens in our district or our county. Homeless service advocates are against the proposal, suggesting it would be better to get people out of homelessness altogether. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. When Jim Havey walked into the studio, I knew I'd learn something. He was a chronicler of Colorado. Havey died last month at 74. Let's listen to our chat from 2012 about his film Centennial Statehouse. It's chock full of facts about Colorado's capital, like the floors are made of Yule Creek marble, the same stuff as the Lincoln Memorial. I asked Havey what caught his attention stepping into the capital. One of the things that really hits you right away is the Beulah red marble. And it is the wainscoting that goes throughout the building. It comes up about four and a half, five feet on the walls. And it's also around all the pillars in the building. It came from a quarry near Beulah, Colorado, which is the wet mountains west of Pueblo. And they took it all out of there. It's the only place that this beautiful marble exists in the world. And the supply is in the capital. The supply is in the capital. And it is Stunning. And, and it's almost like clouds. People see pictures in it. The tour guides will tell you, oh, here's, a, here's Molly Brown or here's Lincoln's uh, face. Why is the Capitol where it is? That plot was donated by a man named Henry Brown. He donated the land in the, in the middle 1860s. And he knew this was on the outskirts of town. But Brown knew that wherever the Capitol, and, and there were other people who donated land for Capitol in other cities, Wherever the capital was going to be was going to become a prime commercial center. So Brown was very smart about it. He plotted out this land. He started calling it Capitol Hill long before the capital was, was built. <laughs> and, and, and it became the, the area of Denver where the mansions were built. It was really the, the upper class neighborhood. And this is the Brown behind the Brown Palace Hotel. That's correct. Not to be a lot of people mistaken. They go, well, it was, he was Molly Brown's husband. No, this was Henry Brown, and he built the Brown Palace Hotel. Well, it's fair to say the construction of the capital 
was delayed. Yes. Yes. Well, the, the whole idea of building a capital, they, money was an issue, just like it is today. So it took a long time to even get the thing organized. And Henry Brown wanted to take the land back at one point because nothing was happening on it. But they finally appointed a board of capital managers and started building the capital in 1886. And they wanted to have it done in about four or five years. And it, it took a long time. They ran into lots of problems in the construction, very delayed. And it took really a total of 15 years to build the capital. Your film points out that they had misjudged the bedrock. They had to go way deeper than they thought they would uh, right. in terms of like the foundation. Right. And and they, they were building from with granite. I mean, this building was intended to be standing for a long, long time. And it was also because fire was a big issue. So this was built to be a fireproof building. And, uh, and the granite, all Colorado materials came from the Aberdeen Quarry near Gunnison, Colorado. And, of course, you mentioned the marble came from the, from marble. You know, an interesting thing about the marble, the marble is the flooring in the Capitol. Right. And the quarry near Marble, Colorado, it took so much to get it out of there that it would have been cheaper to quarry the marble in Carrera, Italy, the fine marble that Michelangelo <laughs> used in the old, the old quarry there. And ship it over? And ship it across the ocean. How, I mean, there just wasn't the infrastructure to there get it out of Marble, Colorado? That's right. If, if you've ever been up there, it's a very narrow, and, and it's 9,800 feet, and uh, they didn't have the, any railroads in place. The roads had to be reinforced. It was very, very difficult. And if you think of these really huge and heavy pieces of marble and what it took to, to take each one out of there, it's amazing that they could do it. The architect of the Capitol is a man named Elijah E. Myers. Correct. And he designed other capitals. He designed the capital in, in Michigan and in uh, Texas. And he was really the Frank Lloyd Wright, the uh, Frank Gehry of his time. He was the great architect. And it was a, a real coup for Colorado to get Myers to come and do this. The style of the Colorado capital, you point out, is neoclassical Corinthian. Right. And, you know, what you learn in the film is that the capital was to be a symbol of democratic ideals. But during its construction... Politics are so dirty. I mean, at one point, there's a plot to kill the governor. Right. There's voter fraud. It's just rampant. And my sense from watching your documentary is the contrast between what the building is supposed to represent and what actually goes on in politics. This was the Gilded Age, and the, there was a wide class divisions between management, capital, and, and labor, and there was rampant corruption. It wasn't only in Colorado, although Colorado did have its own distinctions, but it was in stark contrast to the ideals that were really put behind these grand temples to democracy like the capital that were built. And there, there was an era in the country where these grand uh, neoclassical buildings were built. There were about 15 of them that were going up about the same time. Ah. The Capitol was a museum for a long time and had some rather odd artifacts either on display or stored there. Well, the museum was in the basement. The basement of the Capitol was uh, the home to the Colorado uh, Natural History Museum and the Historical Society, which were the same organization at that time, and the Horticultural Society. There were a number of artifacts, a story about the decapitated heads of two bandits uh, stored in the basement of the Capitol for some time. I've never seen any pictures of them, but I'm not sure if this <laughs> you is... You want to? I don't want to, right? Inside are murals by the muralist Alan True. Mm -hmm. These come a bit later. Right. And I love the message they convey about water. It feels really relevant today. And of course, you can see these murals today. They are one of the grandest displays of art in the Capitol. This is in the Great Rotunda, and there are 
seven or eight panels that were painted in the 30s. They, they, True installed these. They're painted on canvas. They're large pieces. True installed them in 1940. And it is a testament to water and to the common people. There's a symbol of an upside-down water glass. There is. The, the final panel, There is a, this goes through kind of the history of water, and it's with a Thomas Hornsby Farrell poem that starts out, here is a land where life is written in water. But by the time you get from the, the Indians and the rains and the pioneers and the gold panels who used water and get to the end where there's a couple of young people sitting there looking off into the future in this very futuristic-looking scene, and there's an old man with long white hair, and he's got a glass of water in his hand, and it's turned upside down. What true meant by that, I think, is something that he wanted us to just really think about and think about how we were using water and that this is something that we are stewards of and and have to be very uh, wise with. The building being both a symbol of the past and what's ahead. I love the ending of the feral poem that's in the Great Rotunda. It says, beyond the sundown is tomorrow's wisdom. Today is going to be long, long ago. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. The late Jim Havey speaking with me in 2012 about Centennial State House, Colorado's greatest treasure. Havey died January 19th at age 74 of dementia. A celebration of life takes place February 10th at Denver Botanic Gardens. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.